If you have a Bible, you can turn, please, to the book of Exodus, second book of Moses in the Bible. Uh, there are Bibles at the back if you want to avail yourself of one of those church Bibles. If you're reading from the ESV, we'll pray before we read together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your, for your word. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for your book. I thank you for your plan of salvation. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your act of redemption. Thank you for sending your son. We thank you for his finished work. We thank you that he ascended into heaven and that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in the hearts of those who know you. So we thank you for this day and I pray that you, the Holy Spirit would give me help to speak well of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. So Exodus, and we're in chapter 13. Uh, we'll read from verse 17 through to um, chapter 14, verse 14. Um, so Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. That's quite important. Bear that for next week. And if you're not here next week, then make plans to come back because then I'll explain that. But God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etan on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephlon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we might serve the Egyptians. 
For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What a wonderful verse. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. I wonder, Christian, if it's possible you do not know and do not see everything that God knows and sees. And surely our Heavenly Father can look down on us and say, why do you not trust? Why do you not believe? O ye of little faith, if we've been blessed by grace with children, as earthly parents, we do have our children's best interest at heart. And generally we have some clue about what we're doing. But how much more so does our Heavenly Father? Though we do not know what He knows and we do not see what He sees, and though He has plans and purposes that we know nothing about, you may be here this morning, you may have health concerns, Maybe you're waiting for a test result. Or you wish you could just have a test. But you see, it seems that you've exhausted all, all avenues. Or someone close to you has just been diagnosed with a serious disease or an incurable illness. Or maybe there's conflict in your life this morning. You come and there's conflict. You've laid it aside for a while, but there's conflict in your life. Or maybe there are doors that just keep shutting for you, the doors that keep slamming shut. Or maybe, like I do sometimes, I have a tendency to look at the world and get very irritated. You look broadly at the world and you think, why is unrighteousness winning? Why does it seem that sin is prevailing? Christians and Christian virtues are being trampled by so-called Christians, by other professing Christians, at work, at school, in the culture, in politics. Christian values are being rubbished. And you scratch your head. And you say, how can that be? How can that be? How can it be that celebrities, when they decide that they're not going to perform in a certain place because of their views on gender and sexuality, they're called heroes? But if you have a baker, a florist, or a photographer who decides they cannot give their services because of their views on gender and sexuality, they can be fined, reviled, and put out of business, or put in prison. Pastors being put in prison in places like Canada for standing up for God's words. That doesn't seem right, does it? Doesn't seem right. Is it possible? Is it possible? Now, given everything that we can see, you still not, do not see everything that God sees. Think about the Israelites. Think about the Israelites, just for a moment. Beginning the exodus from Egypt. They actually had quite a bit that they could see. <laughs> they had quite a bit that they could see as they started out on their journey. So, 
What I'm starting off with is my first point of the sermon. I've actually forgotten how many points I've got, so I won't try and say how many I've got. But what the Israelites could see, what the Israelites could see. And there's quite a bit that they could see when they began their journey. And as I'm, as I'm very keen on saying about journeys, the journey is not about the journey. The journey is about the destination. And I think many times... Today, we talk about the journey, but we're not interested in the destination. We just, talk, we, we just want to moan about the journey. But my point being is there's no, talk about, no talking, there's no point in talking about the journey unless we talk about the destination. So as, as pilgrims, we're on a de- we're, we are on a journey to heaven. We're on a journey to heaven, the promised land. But here, the Israelites were, were, were stepping out and they were headed toward the promised land. They had the bones of Joseph with them, verse 19. And surely if they were paying attention, this would have been such a great encouragement, because in Genesis 50 we read, and Joseph said to his brothers in verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. God's promise. It was God's promise through Joseph. Hebrews 11, 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What a remarkable evidence of faith. Faith in God's promises. That Joseph, 400 years before, not 40 minutes, 400 years before, had said, though my family is in Egypt now, there's a time in the future when they will return to the promised land. And when you do so, take my bones with you. I want to be buried with my fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in the promised land where we belong. So for 400 years... They kept Joseph's bones in, in a bone box, I don't know, under the stairs somewhere. Or maybe they mummified them. Don't lose that. <laughs> don't lose that. They, but, yeah, but either way, they kind of knew how to get them. But now, when they're setting out on the Exodus, they have the bones with them. As to say, God, 400 years later, has kept his promise. And we have fulfilled the vow that we gave to our ancestor Joseph. And those bones were a powerful reminder of God's never-failing fidelity to his never-forgotten covenant, even after 400 years. They could see it. You see that? They could see it. It's something they could see. And they could see the pillar, the cloud, by day, fire by night. It wasn't two different clouds, one being whisked away and another blowing in at night, but one cloud. One cloud that shone with fire at night, verse, four, verse 19 of chapter 14, and the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 24 of chapter 14, And in the morning watched the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces in a panic. 
In Exodus 40, verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. One cloud. And by daytime, it shows in the sunlight as cloud and at night is a fire that leads them where they need to go. So it's not just the sign of Yahweh's presence, it's the manifestation of Yahweh himself. Verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they might travel by day and by night. And we see throughout the Old Testament what we call theopanies, which means a God appearing. God often appeared in the Old Testament in cloud or in fire. And later on, the glory cloud, Shekinah glory, will rest upon the tabernacle as the weight and the presence of God dwells there. Well, do you remember that strange scene when we were in Genesis, Genesis 15, where Abraham is put in that deep sleep? And he has that dream of animals being torn in two, half a carcass here, half a carcass there. And what passes through those strewn animals but a smoking, blazing fire pot? So smoke and fire are a manifestation in that dream in Genesis 15 of the presence of the Lord. And the saying where, we, where you cut a deal comes from that ancient practice of cutting the covenant. In the ancient world, when you cut a covenant, you cut an animal. And you put the carcass on either side, and the party making the vow passes through the middle, as if to say, may I be torn piece from peace and strewn in two. If I do not keep my promise, it's an important thing. And Abraham sees in Genesis 15, Jehovah, Yahweh, God himself, promising to his people, may I be torn in two if I do not deliver on my promise to you. So it was a theophany. And in much the same way, here we have this cloud of fire, smoke and flame as Yahweh himself leads them. You might think that would be a good thing. Would you, would you like a divine cloud? You know, just think about it, a divine cloud to tell you what to do this week. Just follow the clouds. Just follow that cloud. It'd be very good for business in Keswick, I think. There's plenty of them. And uh, people would probably move here for the clouds. And they would settle. And you could just look up at the cloud and say, who am I gonna marry? Follow the cloud. What job do I take? Follow the cloud. Not, you know, not the cloud, you know, anyway. You don't have to mess around with Google Maps anymore. You don't have to say, hey, no, I'm not gonna say it. Um, you're not gonna have to say that word that triggers the Apple thing. Um, I've done that once and started playing Spice Girls and there was Paul Mallard and something, anyway. I don't have Spice Girls, by the way, but never mind. Um, um, you don't have to mess around with, you know, with, with a navigating system. You follow the cloud. You follow the clouds. And we all have times that we, when we think, wouldn't it be wonderful if God just told me what to do? Have you ever felt like that? I feel like that right now, actually. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God told you what to do? If God told you what to do? So that's what the Israelites could see. Secondly, what the Israelites could not see. Think about what they could not see and probably came to dislike. As much as you and I talk about, wouldn't it be great if God led us like that? 
Do you not think after two days or maybe two hours, you can start saying enough is enough? Time to move, what's this cloud doing? Or if it went in a direction we didn't think was wise, you know, are you sure? That's heading east, don't go there. Do, do, do you have the right cloud? And of course the cloud could tell them where to go, though the cloud could tell them where to know. They didn't know when they would move or what was coming next. They were still in the dark. That's why I said earlier, we know the destination, but we don't know the journey. They could not see all that God was doing for them behind the scenes. And we can't see all that God is doing for us behind the scenes. At the beginning of verse 17, when Pharaoh let them go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. And um, this is what Moses, the narrator, tells us. But we have no way of knowing that the Israelites are aware of this. It was an Israelite story. We'll come back to it a bit more next week. But it was this big highway called the Via Maris. And it's called the Way of the Sea. And if you were going out of the... Some of you might have your own Bibles. I don't think they're in the Pew Bibles. But you know, Bibles have maps in the back. It's really good to have a Bible with a map in the back, by the way. It's a really good thing. And there's a map in there in most Bibles of the Exodus. It's a map of the Exodus. And if you're going out of Egypt, you would take the way of the sea, and it's along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And you could walk from Egypt to Canaan in about two weeks. If you took the way of the sea, which is like a coastal path, it would take two weeks to walk from Egypt to Canaan. Guess how long it took then? 40 years. So the pillar of cloud took them on rather a circuitous path as they wandered around in the wilderness. And if you have a, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, I advise you to look at the map of the Exodus. But here it was God's mercy. And though the most direct route, that two-week route, was across the Via Maris, God said that if they went that way, they would meet the coastal people, the Philistines. And the Israelites weren't ready for a fight, but they were. They were spoiling for it. They would, so they would head back scared and they, they would probably trickle back to Egypt. So it was the Lord's mercy that took them on the longer path, though they may not have seen it. it, it the, sometimes what seems right to a man is not what is God's will for man. It was the Lord's mercy to take them on the longer path. Some of them may have thought, we're leaving Egypt, we're headed for Canaan, why are we going south? We're up here in the Delta, and now we're heading south to the Red Sea, why didn't we follow the Via Maris? God in his mercy and wisdom knows exactly what he is doing. And do you realise all the counterfactuals, the what-ifs in life that never happens. Have you thought about that? What if I had been on that plane? Have you ever felt like that? What if I had gone to that school? What if I had left ten minutes early? If I had left five minutes late, I would have never met my husband or wife. We do not think of the 10,000 things that the Lord does to us in his mercy by never allowing them to happen to us. You think, I could have been in that car, or I was on that road. Or what if God had not ended things with that boyfriend? 
Oh, what a mess he has saved me from. Do you ever think about all the divine nevers in your life that you are blissfully ignorant of? I thank God that I had a godly father. I thank God that my dad didn't hide pornographic magazines in our house because that's how plenty of young men say that they got hooked. So I thank the Lord for that never. I thank the Lord that I was never offered drugs in my life. I thank the Lord for all kinds of nevers in my life. And sometimes Christians who grow up with godly parents and they have a Christian family feel that their life is just ever so boring. Don't, don't, don't. Just thank the Lord for those divine nevers. We're all sinners, but thank the Lord for the divine nevers. And it's like you say, well, I really ought to live it up once in a while so that I can have a testimony, that I can stand up in church and say, no, I mean, it's not anything wrong. God is gracious, God is gracious, God shows grace, but be thankful for the divine nevers in your life. You don't want to have a testimony so you can stand up and say, I thank the Lord that God saved me from all of this stuff so I can understand God's mercy. We all need God's mercy. We should give thanks to the Lord for the messes that we didn't know, for the things he didn't put in our lives. All the paths we never knew were open to us simply because he gave you a parent that brought you to church. Be ever so thankful for a parent who loved Jesus. Be ever so thankful for that parent who took you to church. He didn't put bad friends in our way. Whatever it is, Think of all the things that never happened to you. You never saw your parents yell at each other, never saw them hit each other, or a hundred thousand other things. Just like, you're not gonna go up in the way of the Philistines, but God, hang on, hang on God, that's the best route. I know, but I see things that you don't see. I see things that you don't see. Thirdly, when sight does not make sense, what the Israelites did see didn't make a lot of sense. The route that they were on seemed bonkers. You know, it didn't seem right. They went to Migdol, which is probably a fortified Egyptian city. They went by this way of Piaharihoth, which means an opening in the canal, maybe up there in the Nile Delta region. They went by Baal Zephron, which means Baal of the north. And the god Baal is from the northern part of Canaan. So somehow that religion of the Baals had infiltrated all the way south to Egypt. And here they are on the way out of Egypt. And God says, I want you to turn around and encamp between the desert and the sea. Now, you don't have to be an expert in military or history to understand this is a terrible idea. You have a people who have oppressed you and you're running from them. Just think about this. You, 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 you have a people who've oppressed you, they've kept you in slavery, and you're fleeing them. You're running from them. And not only that, they're the most powerful superpower on the earth at the time. The most powerful superpower on earth at the time. And they have a massive army. And you don't know how to fight. And they may change their mind and come after you. And the last place you want to go, strategically, is between the rock and the hard place. And God says, that's where you want to go. 
So you have the sea here and the desert here. But God was setting a trap for Pharaoh. And the Israelites were the cheese. He was setting a trap for Pharaoh and the Israelites were the cheese. God had a plan. God had a plan. And I'm going to send you there. You'll look like easy pickings. Pharaoh will get to hear about it and say, yeah, they're lost. They're hemmed in by the wilderness and the sea. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. Now's our chance. They're sitting ducks waiting for Pharaoh to overtake them and overpower them. And sure enough, like clockwork, Pharaoh changed his mind. Verse 4 and verse 8, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord was jealous for his own glory. If you don't remember anything else from our studies in the book of Exodus, remember this, that it's the Yahweh is the God who makes himself known. That could be the title over the book, the God who makes himself known. Verse 4, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. He has done ten plagues, but he has one more. The people, one more trick up his sleeve. The people are back in Egypt and the army chasing them. Even as the last thing they know before the waters rush over their heads, they will know that the Lord is God. You see, the common idea in the ancient world is that the gods and goddesses were arbitrary and capricious. They would turn on those angrily who worshipped them in an instant. So it makes sense that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians were thinking, yeah, Yahweh has power in Egypt, we've seen that, but they're in the wilderness. He hasn't got power in the wilderness. Or maybe they did something to anger their God, or maybe he's turning against them. But we have them right where we want them. That's what the Pharaoh and the Egyptians thought. So they sent out the army, they sent out the chariots, they were the tanks, they were the stealth bombers, they were the cruisers, they were the destroyers of the day. And there they are, looking at this army from the superpower of the earth marching towards them. So you can picture a picture up there and you've got that massive army coming towards them and you turn around, you've got the sea. You've got the sea. And if you know the story, if we do, you know what's coming next. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground and the Red Sea swallows up the Egyptians and you relish it. And you know, I really like this bit, you know. I've watched this in the movies, it's really good, this bit. I haven't read my Bible, but I've, I've watched it on the film. Go ahead, Pharaoh. Go ahead, Pharaoh. We know how this story ends. Do you think that the Israelites knew that? They hadn't watched Charlton Heston. They didn't know. They didn't know. They, they didn't care for being in a situation with impossible odds and deadly circumstances. All they could see was the Red Sea over here and the Egyptian army coming towards them. And the pillar keeping them there. The pillar keeping them there. How does that work? So the Israelites did what Israelites do, did best in stressful and scary situations. Do you know what they did? They complained. They complained. They're serial complainers. And it's probably what we do best, isn't it? If we're honest, when we're stressed or tired or scared. 
the worst combination for me is being stressed, tired, and scared. But so verse 11, they said to Moses, and it's always funny reading it, isn't it? Is that because there are no graves in Egypt, but you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone and let us serve in Egypt? I, don't really, I can't quite remember them saying that anyway, but you know, selective memory and all that. But it's a very familiar pattern of complaint, and we follow that same pattern. We in, reinterpret, we revision the past. You know what? That wasn't so bad, was it? It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, actually. You know, Egypt wasn't so terrible. You know, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah we, had, we had four walls. Our kids were here. We knew what each day was going to bring. We are going to get smashed over the head then, smashed over the head then. They weren't that bad. We had work. They were crying out to be free. And some of us are like that, you know. And maybe it wasn't so bad before I became a Christian. You know, at least I had some money. Or when I had those sins and I felt so guilty of those addictions, my life was spinning out of control. Maybe, maybe it wasn't as bad as I remember. We reinterpret the past. We reinterpret the good things that God did. God never really cared for me, did he? These people don't really love me. They've never done anything to help me. We reinterpret after the past and then we restate our unbelief. Hey Moses, we told you this before. This isn't going to work. It sounds to me like Jonah. Jonah. Jonah 4 verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? We reinterpret the past, we restate our unbelief, and we reject the ones who are trying to help us. Moses, you have no idea what you're doing. Pharaoh misjudged Moses, the Israelites misjudged Moses, and it's typical. It happens in churches, it happens in families. We blame the one in authority, always. We blame the one in authority. But the blame is not to Moses, it's rebellion, sinful rebellion against God. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea. At the Red Sea. Maybe the Israelites thought, Jehovah has all this power in these plagues. He's setting us free from Egypt. And the life we'll now live will be free from hardship, suffering, toil, and trouble. And sometimes as new converts or even very old ancient Christians, we think, if God is with me and I'm really walking in his will, then I'm not going to have any difficulty. I've had people say that to me. If I'm truly following the Lord, the Lord will bless me materially. I've had someone say to me in hospital, why am I here when I've obeyed the Lord? At the first sign of trouble, the freed Israelites are ready to head back to slavery. God doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he does tell us what we need to know. And it's not the last time we'll see the people of God complain, but it's surely one of our besetting sins. As relatively, if you take the world as a whole, prosperous people living in a prosperous country, we do live in a prosperous country, that we are complainers. We're apathetic complainants. We reinterpret the past, we restate our unbelief, and we rebel against the only one who can help us, thinking that we know best. 
and forgetting the blessings that God has given us. And fourthly, God's response. God says four things to them, and he will say four things to us. Fear not. Stand firm. See and be quiet. Moses said to the people, fear not. And that should have sounded familiar to them if they knew their history. Genesis 15 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not. Genesis 26 verse 24, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you. Genesis 46 verse 3, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. They were in good company. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now the whole nation of Israel. Have you ever noticed that when we get the description of the armour of God in Ephesians 6, we're not going to going out and fight, fighting hordes of demons. What is the singular command in Ephesians 6? Stand firm. Stand firm. Extinguish the flaming arrows. Be able to withstand the darts and attacks. Stand firm. As Wes has prayed, but we need to grab hold of this, the victory has been won. So stand firm. There is no doubt. We're on the winning side. The victory has been won. God has accomplished it. Now stand. But it's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian, to stand and be still. You know, I'm really impatient. I am, actually. I'm, I'm quite an impatient person. And I hate traffic jams. I hate traffic jams. And I, 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 every time I walk the dog along the Borodale Road this time of year, I thank the Lord that I'm not in that car. <laughs> 45 minutes to get from Grange to Keswick, or even longer. But, so I would rather go in the wrong direction than sit, than sit in a traffic jam. I would. And anyone who's ever ridden with me will know I go on long shortcuts, <laughs> which take four times as long as the original journey. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it so well. I dare say you'll think that it's a very easy thing to stand still. But it's one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are very much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies but it's one of the most difficult things to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle hints at this difficulty when he says, stand fast and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience and divine grace. Isn't that good? I've thought about that. If you look at England, we, we had the coronation, we had the coronation, we had the funeral of our queen. And you see those soldiers standing still? I mean, it takes a lot of training, actually. But then spiritually here, that is the command. It is the novice soldier who, when the bullets are whirring about him, says to his commanding officer, Sir, should we not retreat? Should we not attack? Should we not march a double march? Should we not fix bayonets? It is the veteran soldier who can stand his ground at ease. Wait, fear not, stand firm and see. And see, they were afraid when they saw the Egyptians. But God says it's a good thing that you see the Egyptians. You see them now, but the Lord promises you will not see them again. And finally, be silent. Be silent. It's a great word for parents, for children, isn't it? But it's not the command to ask in every situation. 
not to command us in every situation. We want to speak the words of Christ. And there are many times the Lord tells us to speak. But here their work is to stand still and be quiet. And later on in Exodus 17, Moses will tell them to fight as the Lord fights through them. But here it is the Lord fighting for them. So Israel, demonstrate that you rely on me. I want you to do something unnatural and difficult. I want you to do nothing. I've, often God says to us, do you know what I want you to do right now? Nothing. Have you ever felt that? Do not be afraid. I want you to stand your ground. I want you to see what I will do and be quiet. It's one of the hardest things that we have to do as a Christian. A great theologian once said, you say it best when you say nothing at all. I'm joking. So, <laughs> is it possible with all that you see, you do not see what God sees? But looking back, we will see that God has led. They will be able to trace his hand. That is why you sent me to that school. That is why you shut that door. Lord, that was your mercy to me. Have you ever, thought, have you ever looked back? I have. And thank the Lord for his mercy to me. I can look back on things that I wanted so very much and I thought for sure it would be for my good. And years later I prayed, thank you Lord for not answering my prayer. So looking back we may be able to see it. Looking forward is much more difficult. They could see they had Joseph's bones. God was faithful in the past. God has been faithful to us in the past. We have Joseph's bones. That means that we see, we trace God's faithfulness to us. They could see the fiery cloud that he's providing for them there and then. But what they couldn't see and what you can't see is what will happen in the future. When God guides us, he means it to be a journey of faith, not of sight. As much as we wish God would give us the fork in the road and God would do the writing in the sky and tell us exactly what's coming next, that isn't the way God works. Looking back, we may trace his hands and looking forward, as Charles Spurgeon said, we trust his heart. So looking back, we trace his hands, but looking forward, we trust his heart. We trust in the character of God. They didn't know what sort of man Moses would be. They didn't know what was happening when they made bricks without straw. They didn't know what God was doing in the plagues. They didn't understand why they were to camp between the enemy and the deep blue sea. And do nothing. Have your eyes, keep your eyes fixed on what you can see. Have you ever noticed this connection between Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I think the author of he Hebrews must have had echoes of this on his mind. We don't have a cloud to see, but we have Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. They were glued to the crowd, clouds, and we my friends, are glued to the cross. Gaze on Jesus. Would you see Jesus today? Learn about Jesus. Would you listen to Jesus? Would you read about Jesus? Would you know about Jesus? Would you fix your eyes on him? Because that is what you can see. You cannot see the future. 
You cannot see the next step. You cannot see what tomorrow will bring, but you can see Jesus. And it's fitting we leave the Israelites here. We'll leave it here and we'll come back to it next week. Because this is where many of us live our lives. We're not knowing that great Red Sea victory. But we see the army. We don't see the victory, but we see the army. And we see the sea behind. God, what are you going to do now? God has taken them this far. And he's taken you this far. And he's not going to leave you. He didn't leave them. He will never leave you. They are not on the shortest, most direct route. Far from the obvious way. But I tell you this. It is the best way. Because it's God's way. It is the best way because it's God's way. So it is in our lives. God rarely takes you on the path you think is best. Rarely does God take you on the shortest route. Rarely does God set you on life's journey and put you on the most obvious path. And rarely do you look back and say, God, that's exactly what I would have done. But it's not the shortest. It's not the most direct. But it is the best. And we can trust his heart. Because God sees a lot of things we do not see. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.